Welcome to the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast. My name is Beth Shank, Healthcare Sustainability Leader in Missoula, Montana. On the podcast, I interview nurses working at the intersection of health and environment. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Aaron Kyle, Editor-in-Chief of the Guidelines for Perioperative Practice of the Association of Perioperative Registered Nurses, known to many as AORN. Dr. Kyle and her team recently revised and published the AORN Position Statement on Environmental Responsibility, a profession-leading document that reaches many practicing nurses around the world. We discuss some details about this document, as well as Erin's commitment to patient safety and environmental care. She leaves us with five fabulous tips for action at the end of our talk. Enjoy! Welcome to the podcast, and I'm so pleased to have Dr. Aaron Kyle with me today. Aaron is editor-in-chief of the AORN Guidelines for Perioperative Practice. We know how much guidelines influence all of our nursing practice, and AORN is one of our larger nursing professional organizations, so I'm really pleased to have Dr. Kyle. Welcome. So pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. You bet. Well, tell us a bit about your yourself as a nurse, your nursing background, how you got to where you are. Um, and then, then next, I'm going to ask you a little bit about uh, environment. All right. One of my favorite topics. Yeah. All right. I have been a nurse since 2002. And uh, when I first became a nurse, I really wanted to change the world. And I was quite discouraged back then that I couldn't achieve that in my first year of nursing. Um, so it may be my affinity for immediate gratification in my early years that really drew me to perioperative nursing, which is where I have spent my entire professional career. Um, so I started in back in 2002 as a staff nurse working as a circulating nurse in the operating room in a mid-sized hospital. And so, uh, after working in the clinical setting and various roles in the staff level and leadership, I landed my dream job at AORN, where I've been since 2017. So now, as part of this organization, um, we are quite literally changing the world with our guidelines, position statements, and standards. Um, AORN's influence is really incredible, and I'm honored to have the opportunity to contribute to the great work that we do to advance patient safety, to advocate for worker safety in the perioperative setting, and also to encourage environmental responsibility there. Uh, AORN is the Association of Perioperative Registered Nurses, and it, uh, it, reaches, it reaches nurses in the spectrum or the continuum of the perioperative uh, patient experience. So all the way from the time that the patient is scheduled for surgery through the time that they're discharged and sometimes even after that. That's great. So are you, uh, does that mean today you don't spend time in OR specifically because this takes all of your time? Is that true? That is true. And I do sometimes miss the clinical setting, but uh, when I when I find myself missing it, I remind myself of the opportunity for influence that I have with AORN in the work that we do. So I work um, in front of a computer most of the time, um, working on guidelines, position statements, standards, and helping to advance education and knowledge um, among perioperative nurses so that they can practice the most effectively. 
That's fabulous. And I totally um, think, I totally agree that it's so important to be working upstream of practice and uh, anticipating issues and addressing them with the use of evidence um, so that so many can use. Our guidelines are used um, by frontline perioperative nurses to make practice, practice decisions in the moment. They're used by organizational leaders to formulate policies and procedures. Uh, they're also used by accreditation agencies to make decisions about how to conduct surveys in healthcare organizations. Um, and they're also used by the federal government to, to see what priorities there are for perioperative nursing in particular. So there's, it's, our guidelines are very broadly used and have a huge influence on so many different levels and layers of perioperative practice. That's great. I usually, and I will ask, uh, I focus on environment and health, but I'd be really interested to explore your career path because many people who listen to the podcast, I think, are interested in nurses' roles, how they got to where they are. How did you approach your education, for instance? Oh, this is a really fun question, and <laughs> um, my answer may surprise you and many listeners. Uh, when I began in college, I set out to find a way to, to help people in their lives um, because my father had had, had many strokes when I was a, a, young, a young child. And this really set the course of my life to find ways to help people to do better for themselves. And um, in retrospect, it's really surprising that I didn't land in nursing in the beginning. I actually had six majors <laughs> in college. I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. But um, in the end, I finally realized um, after the fifth major kind of lost, uh, I lost interest in my fifth major, I realized that I had majored in basically every aspect of health and that nursing would bring all of those together. And that's how I, I landed in, um, in nursing in college. Um, after college, I um, found myself in the operating room again, that immediate gratification affinity led me to the operating room. And I was blessed to have a a five-year career as a staff nurse, and then uh, was drawn into leadership, uh, where I I got to exercise another part of my brain and really enjoyed helping teams succeed and caring for patients. Um, I've always had this drive for lifelong learning, so I I finished my bachelor's degree in 2002, and shortly after that realized that I'd I wanted to pursue a master's degree. So I finally did that, um, entered a master's program in 2010 and finished that in 2012 and then was invited to continue with the DNP, which I wasn't really considering at the time, but um, I was enjoying school so much. And I know that sounds very nerdy and probably surprising, but I was enjoying it so much that I just continued uh, through with the DNP. And that's really what opened the door for me to, uh, to join the AORN, that was a, a requirement for the position. And um, again, I think I mentioned this before, it's my dream job. And it's uh, I feel very blessed to have had so many opportunities to learn so many different things about nursing and a staff role in leadership and providing education. Um, and now where I am now, writing and editing guidelines, standards, and position statements. 
That's cool. So it had a, your DNP particularly had an almost an immediate payback. It sounded like or very quickly allowed you to go someplace where you couldn't have gone without it. Right. And it, and I didn't have a plan for that. I just knew that I wanted to know more so that I could do more for more people. And in doing that, it, it really opened doors that I never dreamed possible. That's great. I had a similar experience with a PhD route um, that doors just started opening that I didn't even know were there. And I've had people ask me if I would have done anything different. And I usually say I would have done that a lot sooner because it's so satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. In some ways, I would agree with you. But in others, I think, you know, I, I really enjoyed the experiences that I had leading up to it. And I don't think I would trade those. Yeah, that's good. Well, so let's do shift a little bit and talk about about environment. You know, you know this, and I know many listeners do, but I, well, first of all, I work on hospital sustainability. So I'm deep in acute care and I work on the environmental impacts of healthcare. So I end up working with um, surgical services staff quite a bit, um, physicians, nurses, purchasers, engineers who are working on HVAC setbacks and, and that sort of thing. And we often think that about half of a hospital's environmental footprint comes from the OR, um, depending, of course, on the size and everything. So tell me about how did you get interested in, in working toward environmental improvements in the operating room? And again, AORN is certainly a leader in this area. So tell me about that with your experience and your interest. Oh, well, so it seems like every question that you ask me, I'm, I'm reaching back into my past and then, <laughs> and then traveling into my, into my, into the present here. Um, this is a, it's a really great question. I became interested in the opportunity to improve in the area of waste really early in my career, I noticed the amount of medical waste that just a single surgical procedure produced was just absolutely appalling. And at that time, early in my career, I was not in a place to make changes at the organizational level, but I did have the power to judiciously use disposable supplies on a case-by-case basis myself in the operating room. And while I knew that that was small, I was making a difference. We know that there are probably somewhere around 250 million major surgical procedures performed globally each year. And many of those procedures generate waste related to opened and unused disposable supplies. Imagine if every nurse in every procedure saved just one unnecessary supply from being opened. The collective efforts of perioperative nurses could save upwards of 250 million items of waste from surgical procedures alone each year. And so that's that's kind of where I began. And then now fast forward 17 years to my work at AORN, where recently I worked with Julie Moyle of Practice Green Health on an update to the AORN position statement on environmental responsibility which was published this year. And this position statement outlines AORN's beliefs about environmentally responsible perioperative practice, and it supports perioperative nurses by giving them detailed recommendations for conserving natural resources, reducing waste, and reducing hazardous material exposure. 
So when I talk about this, it really gives me chills because my dream of making a difference has really finally come true in our work at AORN. That's fabulous and great job on those guidelines. Um, you you really are pushing um, the profession and the industry, I would say, uh, in part because, as you point out, the, the sheer number of surgeries, but also the um, influence of a surgery program in, in any hospital. I mean, you think about why do hospitals exist? Uh, one reason, at least for major surgeries, is so that all the care associated with that surgery can be there in one place. I realize there are also ambulatory surgery centers, et cetera, but this applies to them as well. So right. nice work. What what was um, what are you most proud of about that document, this recent uh, version? And what was most challenging, would you say? Oh, wow. Well, uh, I think that what I'm most proud of is the, the evidence base that it has. So um, and environmental responsibility and climate change can become an emotional topic for, for many. And this, this is not an emotional document. It is really an evaluation and deep dive into the science around what we can do as perioperative nurses to improve environmental health um, just by the decisions that we make each day in the operating room. And it's, I'm, I'm really pleased with the way that it's formatted because it begins with uh, what AORN believes. And it even ties into the UN Sustainable Development Goals and provides some, some beliefs about what education for healthcare professionals should include. And then it, it goes into some detailed recommendations about what environmentally responsible practices perioperative nurses can engage in that really make a big change. And, and those are organized in a really, really great and succinct uh, way in, in the categories of conserving natural resources, waste reduction, and also uh, hazardous material exposure reduction. Um, it also includes a, a really succinct and comprehensive rationale supporting all of these recommendations and beliefs. And, um, and you asked me about the most challenging thing. The most challenging thing about this document was to keep it brief. <laughs> There's so many things that we wanted to say and so much detail that we wanted to include. It took a, a fair amount of effort to, um, to format it in a way that communicated all of the really essential components that needed to be shared, uh, while also being a document that's short enough that it's consumable and usable in the healthcare organizational setting. Well, it's a beautiful document, and I'll, I'll include the link in the show notes. Um, so I have a few questions. What, first of all, what educational strategies do you use? So in other words, how did the members get to know this? Do they stumble upon it? Do you have a, a rollout program? How do you disseminate this? Oh, great question. You have all, all of your questions are great. <laughs> uh, we, we have a, uh, a list of position statements that are housed on our website that are accessible to the public. Anyone can get to them. Um, if you search, if you do a Google search for environmental responsibility, it does come up on a, on a search um, even if you're not an AORN member, you can still find this. Um, when we do an update to our position statements, we do communicate that out to our membership through news newsletters, emails, 
um, social media pushes. Um, and we also publish them in our AORN journal, which is available both in, um, in an electronic and a print format. So we, we widely and broadly communicate our position statement updates um, in many ways. And what sort of response have you heard from this uh, particular guideline so far, position statement? Well, people love this position statement. Um, and there are other organizations that who, um, other organizations do reference this when they're making decisions about their own environmental um, uh, practices. And, and, and I can't give you an example because I can't remember off the top of my head, some of the organizations that have that have come to us and said that I just uh, in my in my day to day interactions with with people from other organizations, I, people mention it all of the time. And we also reference this position statement in our guidelines when we are making an effort to look for evidence that supports environmental environmentally responsible recommendations for each of our specific guidelines as well. Great. That's that's super helpful to have that lens kind of added or ad additional. Um, you know, what one of the things I talk about a lot is that it's um, it is part of nursing practice, and, and I'm sure you would agree with that. Not only because we're called to it by our standard of practice that says the registered nurse practices in an environmentally safe and healthy manner, but also because environmental degradation is such a driver of health, of poor health. And so if we're not addressing the pollution that we're causing, then we're really contributing to the problem. Absolutely. I could not agree more. So I have another question related to this, which is what, what has your experience been with the pandemic um, about particularly about um, this area, you know, in terms of disposables, in terms of uh, increased resource use um, and I'm not suggesting that that's not necessary. I know that we must first provide the safest care we can, but I just wondered what what are you seeing and hearing from your the surgical through the surgical lens? Well, a couple of things. There has been a drastic increase in consumption of personal protective equipment uh, for those organizations who are caring for those critically ill COVID nineteen patients. Um, but something that's been really encouraging for us is that we have we have seen so many organizations who are making an effort to shift to reusables in surgical drapes, surgical gowns, um, all of the protective equipment that does have a reusable option. People are actually going back to that. Um, right now, it's out of necessity. But what's really encouraging to me is that once they've made that switch, it seems to stick. So once you've pulled the trigger on a change in a healthcare organization, you really just kind of keep doing that until something causes you to make the change to a different format. So I, what I hope is that the, the reusable, um, the, the, the change to go to reusable items is one that will be sustained even after the pandemic is over. Right. Me too. And, you know, my experience, which is outside of the OR, um, is that, for instance, reusable isolation gowns or reusable um, bed padding, it's more comfortable. Uh, the nurses prefer it. It saves money. 
it's very the process is not onerous in terms of washing and getting getting things back and so just having that experience i think is part of what sells people on it and and you know probably the cost savings is a big piece is that your experience in or linens let's say from reusable gowns reusable covers etc do you know about the cost particularly um, I'm not as familiar with the cost um, because it, in my role at AORN, I don't really work with that, but mm-hmm. I have read some studies about uh, life cycle assessments for uh, various reusable items in the operating room. And uh, part of that assessment did include cost. And what the researchers found in those studies was that cost was reduced in addition to, you know, resource utilization and waste was also a uh, reduced by switching to reusables. Right. So interesting. I feel like this um, comparative practices is a, is a necessary piece of nursing science. So how, how, how do different products function side by side? Because, you know, we mostly get our information from the vendors and I'm, I'm forever interested in doing uh, some sort of analysis of different products, especially from my perspective, those that have less environmental footprint and comparing um, outcomes and preferences and cost and, um, you know, the whole gamut that would really give us evidence that we could take more directly to both the vendors and to our decision makers in hospitals. Right, right. I'd, I'd like to just follow up with, follow up what you just said with uh, an example of, of exactly what we say in our guidelines using um, the guideline for sterilization packaging systems in, as an example. So mm-hmm. what we say is select environmentally preferable sterilization packaging over other options when they are equivalent in performance. Mm-hmm. And, and, we give, and we give references there for, for the user to, um, as they're making decisions about what products to use, uh, really look at specific criteria, and we go on to say in our guideline to look at sustainable manufacturing, reusability, uh, maintenance, disposal, for example, waste versus recycling, and resource consumption to use that product. So what we're really trying to do with our guidelines is, is put this specific information into the hands of frontline nurses and leaders who are making decisions about, about what products to use and also give them the scientific backing that they can, they can go to as they're approaching their, their, uh, their, the leaders within their organization that who are making those purchasing decisions in the end. Yes. That's so helpful because I think to a, a lot of people that a lot of nurses that I speak with, they are interested and um, some sympathetic with this effort, but really get, bogged down with, well, well, what? And then hear different things from different people. And it's, you know, we need more clarity. So that's really helpful with the position statement and the guidelines and the references that you've provided. So nice work. I can tell this is going to have an impact and it already is. We really hope so. It, it's yeah. our, it's our duty. So I have another question related to nursing practice, which is really that of CRNAs. I don't know if you're REACH extends to CRNAs. One of the areas we've been working on in our health system is the greenhouse gas impacts of anesthetic agents of the inhaled agents, particularly desflurane. And I, I have read somewhere, but I have not been able to find it, so I, I shouldn't say it, but I have read that more nurses deliver anesthesia than do MDs in our country because there are so many CRNAs, especially in rural areas and especially in large health systems. 
Do you work with CRNAs as well? Uh, I worked with CRNAs in the clinical setting uh, before I came to AORN, and I also work with CRNAs at AORN because we have two who are members of our guidelines advisory board. Mm. So they, they do work alongside us as we develop our guidelines as contributors. Tell me how uh, your, your knowledge and experience of working with CRNAs to reduce the um, greenhouse gases from anesthetic agents. Oh, yes. So within our environmental responsibility position statement, we do uh, point to the American Society of Anesthesiologists and the American Nurses American Association of Nurse Anesthetists recommendations for environmental practices um, within the reduce hazardous waste material exposure section of that document. So what we say is um, that education should be should be provided on the global warming potential of anesthetic gases, and definitely refer to those professional organizations' recommendations, which are very good. Um, to reduce that in the perioperative environment. So interesting. So tell me what you think of, so for a a nurse, an an RN um, leader, direct care nurse, circulator in the periop area, who's not a CRNA, what do you think specifically a nurse can do about that issue? I think education is, is really the key. And while a perioperative a circulating nurse doesn't have the decision-making authority to choose an anesthetic gas. What they do have is the ability to have the conversation with the person who is delivering anesthesia, whether it be a CRNA or uh, an MD anesthesiologist. Um, it's, It's important for the team to have an honest discussion about Um, this global warming potential of anesthetic gases and make a decision as a team. And that's what we say at AORN um, almost always is the best way to make the best decision is to form an interdisciplinary team and use the best evidence to guide your practice. And in this case, that would be um, looking to the global warming potential of anesthetic gases Uh, having that conversation in advance. So when the time comes to make a decision about anesthetics, that that's an informed decision for, for the person who is making it. That's great. And you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, surgical services particularly is a team team event. I mean, it takes uh, a number of disciplines. So thank you for that. You know, a related topic is nitrous oxide. I don't know if you address that in your, um, statement, we have found in several of our hospitals, so my health system has 51 hospitals, and then several of them, there have been leaks of nitrous uh, that were are just undetected and undetectable, really, unless you start to look at how fast you're going through your nitrous. And this is mostly in older buildings. And um, we track the greenhouse gases from our anesthetic agents. And we are creating more greenhouse gases from nitrous than we are from our volatile agents at this point, even though the volatile agents cost, oh, I don't know, 100 times more probably. So it's kind of like a sleeper that people aren't that concerned because it's not expensive and yet it's quite polluting. So I don't know if that ever comes up in your conversations either. We haven't specifically talked about nitrous oxide in, in, in our documents, but I would agree that 
those, those agents that aren't as expensive are not as closely monitored. Mm-hmm. Um, but perhaps they should be. And knowing what, what you just said, I think it's important that organizations make an effort to install alarms or mm-hmm. somehow monitor that in a meaningful way and not just notice it sometime after the fact that you're, you know, you've run out of gas. So there must have been a leak sometime in the past, but rather catch that in the moment. Yeah, exactly. Um, another question just along these lines is, is, do you, uh, what, uh, is there a bridge on this topic, anesthetic agents or any topic related to pollution specifically, because that's what I'm interested in with patients. Is that something you ever talk to patients about or would encourage staff to talk with patients about, especially if they have a, maybe I should say, if they have a program they're proud of that has reduced pollution, how would you bridge that with patients? I, th- I think that that really talking about the environment with patients is 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 really important. Um, of course, when they come into the perioperative environment, their priorities are not thinking about you know global warming. They're anxious about having their own surgery. So um, I think overall, in a healthcare in a healthcare organizational setting, it's a good idea to put that information in front of them as a priority. Uh, as an example, there's there are some there are some hospital buildings that are new that used um, environmentally friendly construction practices. Um, they used LEED certification in their in their hospital construction. I think that by putting that out there, just putting a sign up at the very least to let people know that this was a priority for this organization when they constructed the building, really communicates that environmental responsibility is important to the organization, even if it's not the priority of the patients and visitors who enter the building at the time, they do see it and they'll remember it when they see it again. Um, I think that it's important to remember that the things that we model as healthcare professionals in the healthcare setting are what the population takes as best, best practices when they go back into their life. So if they see the healthcare organizations are making environmental sustainability a priority, then they'll be more likely to prioritize that that in their own lives. Right. The 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 trusted voice of health professionals and especially nurses, I think that's really uh, can have a big impact. It, it might just reinforce what people are already thinking and feeling, but it also may open eyes. We hope so. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to um, switch a little bit, staying with environment and health, to talk about a little bit more personally. What What do you think motivates you for this work? I mean, I understand your your professional commitment and your desire to uh, lead and to create safe practice, but particularly about environment. What do you think motivates you? Well, a couple of things. One, I'm I'm in a position of influence, and I I I feel a, a huge responsibility to all of the people who are depending on me, to educate myself and do the right things for today and into the future. And that um, that really should and does, in my view, prioritize the environment. Um, but on a very personal level, I really enjoy being in nature. It is soul healing. And in, especially in trying times like we're in now with the stress of COVID-19 and the uncertainty that surrounds that, it's, 
there's no place where I find greater personal healing than in, in a natural space where I can reflect. So being on an Arkansas river or lake or just out among the trees, um, is, it's a real gift and it's very grounding and it reminds me every day the importance of the relationship that people have with the environment. Yeah, that's great. And um, following up on that, is there an area that you would consider your biggest concern about the environment right now? Yes, I, I think my biggest concern is that our global community is at risk for environmental catastrophes. And some people don't believe that it's a problem. And some people don't believe that we have the power to turn the Titanic to avoid these catastrophes. I see leaders at many levels and some in the highest levels discounting the global threat of climate change. And this in turn really communicates to the larger population that environmentally responsible choices at the individual level aren't necessary. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. Individual choices in the aggregate of those choices are what will turn the Titanic. Yeah, hear, hear. We, we, I, I, I hear people make that distinction a lot. Well, I can't do anything myself. It has to be system change. And then people working on system change say it's, it takes every single person to be involved. And I think it, it's both. By practicing, it changes, I hope, our minds and our attitudes and our awareness so it's a matter of practicing in our day-to-day -day lives as well. Absolutely. Um, I know that I learned about you, Erin, through Annie, Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments. How are you involved with Annie? I became involved in Annie as a staff liaison from AORN. And I was invited to, when I joined AORN, to join that group on behalf of AORN and, and really form as and, and really function as a liaison between the two. So um, I've learned so much about the work of that organization and, and all of the contributors to it. And I'm just really honored to have the opportunity to work alongside those professionals. Well, that's great. Well, thank you for your, your professional contribution, I, I say as a board member. So <laughs> uh, um, is there anything that you would like to say to nurses, particularly, about how they could get involved in this work, in professional development, in environmental stewardship? Anything you'd like to pass on? Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there are so many things that nurses can do to become involved. And, and there are nurses in many different um, professional practice environments. And, and, eat, and it, it doesn't matter if you work in an office setting like I do, or if you work with patients directly like I used to do, or, or somewhere in between, um, every nurse has the opportunity to make a difference. And um, I actually have a top five list <laughs> that, that I have prepared for, for a, a question like this that I'm asked often. Um, so I would say that number one, make choices every day that support a healthy environment from the things that you buy, the places that you go, and the food you consume, and the, the items that you use in your professional practice. So that's number one, make choices every day. And number two, uh, educate yourself about how your choices relate to either healing or harming the planet. 
if you think about your choices in that context, it really brings home and opens your eyes if you if you really consider every choice that you make in those through that lens. Number three, commit to yourself, your family, and your patients that you will prioritize environmental sustainability in your personal and professional life. So number one, make choices. Number two, educate yourself. Number three, make that commitment. Number four, teach your family and your patients about climate change and environmental responsibility and be sure that you really help them to understand how individual choices matter. So as, as nurses, we are educators um, and we need to prioritize this education in our everyday uh, practice, whether it's with our family or our patients or both. Number four, uh, number five, and uh, this may be the most important and the, and perhaps the most difficult to understand and that is be inspiring in the way that you engage with environmental responsibility concepts. So your actions will be led by the way that you feel and exude an inspirational presence, and that will draw others to you in an inspiring way. Trust me on that. That's fabulous, Erin. I think we should get that out there everywhere. Have you written a paper yet on this? <laughs> no, but I, I wouldn't take much encouragement to get it done. <laughs> okay. I bet I could find people to work with you if you, if you would like. <laughs> I'll take it. Well, well, thank you so much for, for that, that uh, thoughtful response. And, and also, you know, the time that you have spent thinking about this and finding real solutions. It's really wonderful and it's inspiring to talk to you about it. So I, as a colleague, I appreciate your work and I recognize your gifts. So thank you. Likewise. Thank you. Well, um, is there, it's been really fun to talk with you, Erin. And is there anything else you'd like to say today? Yes. Since we are in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic, I'd like to say to all the nurses who are out there working on the front lines, thank you. And remember to take care of yourself. I know that many of you are facing challenging times, working long hours, and are seeing things in your work that are really emotionally stirring. I want to give you permission to take time for you. You need healing too. And remember, fatigued nurses make more mistakes. So if you need a patient-centered reason to take time for self-care, there it is. Here, here. Well, thank you again, Erin, for spending the time with me. And uh, congratulations on your fine career. And it was a pleasure. It, it was a pleasure. And thank you so much for this opportunity to speak with you. It's been a pleasure getting to know you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Dr. Erin Kyle for joining me today. Her professionalism, commitment, and clarity come shining through in our conversation. I encourage all who are listening today to share this podcast with perioperative nurses, leaders, faculty, and others. Perhaps nurses will take on Erin's challenge to reduce one item of waste from each surgical case. What an impact that could make. Thank you again to Dr. Erin Kyle, and thank you all for listening today. 
This and other episodes of the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast can be found at envirn.org. And please leave a review for us wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to you next time.